You're listening to The Globalist, first broadcast on the 29th of January 2024 on Monocle Radio. The Globalist, in association with UBS. Live from London, this is The Globalist. I'm Emma Nelson and a very warm welcome to today's programme. Coming up, three US troops are dead and dozens are injured after a drone attack on a military base on the Syrian-Jordanian border. Joe Biden is quick to point the finger at Iran. We'll ask how high is the risk of violence spiralling out of control. And in that context, we'll ask can the CIA really broker a ceasefire in Gaza? We'll examine what's been a glimmer of hope after a weekend of talks in Paris. What we want to make sure is that they know they're going to continue to get our support, but that we also want to see reduction in civilian casualties, more humanitarian assistance going in, and obviously, as I said earlier, get those hostages out. Also coming up, Alexander Stubbs returns to the front line of Finnish politics as the former prime minister makes it to the second round of the presidential elections. Plus, we head to Thailand's Biennale. But this show in particular is so interesting to me because each time is different, like a performance. The audience make it the show. Speaking of performances, we'll hear the verdict of Matthew Broderick and Sarah Jessica Parker's debut on the London stage, and we'll look at the Monday's papers too. That's all ahead on The Globalist, live from London. First, a quick look at what else is happening in today's news. Debt-laden Chinese property giant Evergrande has been ordered to liquidate by a court in Hong Kong, with a judge saying enough is enough. Hundreds of thousands of people across Germany have taken to the streets to demonstrate this weekend against the rise of the far right. And a man has been arrested after opening an aeroplane's emergency door and walking onto the wing. He was on board a plane which had been stuck for hours on the tarmac at Mexico International Airport without air conditioning or water for the passengers. Stay tuned to Monocle Radio for updates on these stories. We begin with the news that three US service members have been killed and many more wounded in a drone strike in northeast Jordan near to the border with Syria. The US President Joe Biden called it a despicable and wholly unjust attack and claimed that Iran-backed militias are behind it. He added that those responsible will be held to account. Well, our US editor Christopher Lord has been following the events. A very good morning to you, Chris. Hi, good morning, Emma. What details do we know about what happened? So, as you mentioned there, an, an attack on Sunday in a U.S. Uh, base in northeastern Jordan, right near the border with Syria. Uh, three U.S. service members have been killed. Many more have been wounded. Um, and according to President Biden and, and officials around him, they're blaming it on what they call radical Iran-backed militant groups who are operating in and around Syria and Iraq. Uh, it was a drone attack believed to be on a on a barracks area within the base. Uh, so a very sensitive part of that base. Now, Iran has denied any involvement uh, in what happened on Sunday. It's still not quite clear which group is believed to have made the attack, although there has been some uh, braying online by a group called Islamic uh, Resistance in Iraq, which has got links to the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps and the Iran Quds Force in Iran. Um, yet to be confirmed that they are the ones behind this, but they have staged many drone attacks on U.S. assets around the Middle East since the war uh, in Israel and Gaza kicked off in October. 
Now, as you mentioned, Biden has, has vowed to hold those responsible to account. You know, he's on the campaign trail at the moment. He's down in South Carolina. His words are, we shall respond. But as I say, there have been many attacks on U.S. assets since uh, the Israel's war in Gaza began in October. Um, but this is very significant because it's the first time we're seeing U.S. service members being killed. This is a major escalation. Uh, that ha- really does have the potential, I think, to drag the U.S. into this into this war, which it's been desperate to uh, remain supportive of its ally Israel uh, without getting too embroiled in what's happening. And we have to remember, of course, just for, for some background here, the background noise is that in, in Paris, uh, U.S., Israel, Qatar and Egypt, representatives of those four nations have all been meeting, trying to find a way to bring Israel and Hamas to some kind of ceasefire, constructive talks, but against, of course, against the backdrop of this attack on Sunday, just kind of muddy the water a little bit. And the U.S. is really, as I say, Biden is going to have to find a way here to respond that shows he's not a soft touch on what uh, on what's happened. Do we know what that response might look like? Um, that Biden will be under huge pressure to react, not least because we now have situations where Americans are being killed. So the Pentagon will be offering what a menu of options. Correct. So exactly that. So the, the, the Pentagon will now come to the president with a sort of suite of options of what they what he can how he can respond. And that will range everything from uh, pretty surgical strikes on the group that they believe carried out the attack through to maybe leaders or, or important figures within the uh, sort of military theocracy mix that you find in Iran who are involved in, in Iraq and Syria. You know, we famously think back to the sort of assassination of Qasem Soleimani, who it was was in it was in Iraq at the time, but an Iranian general. Uh, those kind of surgical strikes could be an option. Trying to pick off people who uh, are very involved with these kind of radical groups around the Middle East, stretching from what we're seeing in Iraq and Syria right through to Yemen. That could be where this ends up, <clears throat> or it could it could also be as some very senior Republican senators are calling for something actually directly at Iranian assets. Lindsey Graham, Senator Lindsey Graham, overnight said, "Hit Iran now." And hit them hard, and you know that's no surprise for anybody who knows Lindsey Graham. He's very hawkish uh, and very much of the opinion that uh, the, the Biden administration has been a soft touch on the Middle East, and that's really opened up sort of allies of America like Israel for what we've seen in the last few months. You know, he specifically said target strike targets of significance inside Iran. Similar things from Mitch McConnell. Uh, the Senate, Senate Minority Leader, head of the Republican Party, basically within the Senate, similar sort of sentiment, basically saying that, you know, these half measures, uh, half responses, a little bit like what we're seeing in Yemen, in his view, which is a little bit halfway there, not quite getting to the nub of the issue, which is Iran. But as you mentioned, he's, Biden is under profound pressure here in a campaign year, in an election year, when a lot of Americans will be feeling very, very concerned. Nothing gets Americans fired up like something like this, uh, uh, you know, foreign uh, service members posted overseas who are suddenly dragged into a world where they are not directly combatants or so it's perceived directly combatants within within a conflict. So it's going to be a major moment. And of course, politically, it's going to be very, very sensitive for them as well. Um, So the US has to be seen to succeed in any response to this, especially as you mentioned, the the strikes um, that the Houthi rebels have carried out on the Red Sea seem to have done nothing to um, deter them at all. Um, But this is now getting into a situation where the real question of escalation is being mentioned. I mean, is this the moment when the consequences of the 7th of October are, are now being felt across the region? Because there's, what, 10 countries involved now? So I think to come back to that point about the pressure that Biden is on, 
when he gets presented with this suite of options from the Pentagon, he's also going to be proportionate here because the last thing he's going to want to do is drag America further into into this because that's when that that's when really this this as you say it's when what happened on October seventh then translates into something that's dragged in as you say ten nations in the region but then increasingly America brought into that and depending on how that rea- how that reaction unfolds it really has that powder keg feel you know these these uh, things are moving very very quickly over there in the Middle East you know it was only uh, it was only a week and a half ago that the strikes on Houthi rebels in, in, in Yemen began. Um, so, you know, now we're seeing real sort of long, you know, um, sort of deep bombing campaigns happening over several weeks. You know, things can move very, very quickly and are extremely febrile. I think there, there as I say, there is the background music here of some kind of talks about a ceasefire, but they're not moving very quickly either. You know, they're moving not at the pace at which events like this that we're seeing happen overnight are, are unfolding. I just think that, that because of the, um, political pressure that's behind, that's on Biden at the moment uh, to show that he is can be tough when he needs to be tough. That presents itself as a kind of opportunity, if you like, for those who are very hawkish to pile the pressure on and actually do something that might end up dragging America into a war that it really doesn't want to be part of. Chris Lord, Monocle's US editor, thank you so much for joining us on The Globalist. Well, before this weekend's attack on the US military base, there had been talk of a glimmer of hope in the Middle East with discussions taking place to bring about some kind of a pause of fighting in Gaza. To tell us more, I'm joined now by Julie Norman, Deputy Director of the UCL Centre on US Politics and in Jerusalem, by Nimrod Goran, Senior Fellow for Israeli Affairs at the Middle East Institute and founder of the Israeli foreign policy think tanks, Mitbem. Thank you very much indeed for joining us. Good morning to you both. Good morning. Um, Julie, let me begin with you. Just, we heard a little bit uh, a moment ago of, of what was happening, but these are talks happening in Paris. And, and who was there and what do we know about what's been said so far? Sure. So these have been talks that have been building for a little while now. The meeting in Paris really brought together some of the key intelligence officials to try and bring the deal together. So this included William Burns, the CIA director from the U.S., as well as his Israeli counterpart, the head of uh, Egyptian uh, Egyptian intelligence, and also um, uh, different officials from Qatar who have been mediators really with um, with the Hamas uh, side of things. So this has been conversations, again, that started previously to this weekend. This weekend was trying to um, essentially get to a deal that would allow for 30 to 60 days of a pause in uh, fighting in the offensive and would allow for really the release of most hostages um, over that period. But um, still a lot of sticking points coming out of Paris yesterday. No deal announced and progress made, but I think still quite a ways to go. Nimrod, do we know what these gaps in, in agreement are? I mean, clearly Hamas and Israel are coming at it from two completely different points of view with two completely different goals in mind. But the the sticking points are what? Exchanges of prisoners and, and the duration of the pauses in fighting, as we understand. Beyond the technicality, I think the, the end goal is of importance because Israel wants to keep for itself the option of resuming the fighting once the pause ends, while Hamas wants to use this arrangement, if it will be agreed upon, as a stepping stone towards a, a total cessation of the war something that Israel does not want to do, given that its war objective has not been yet. Uh, yet. Tell us a little bit more, uh, Julie, about why the CIA and Mossad seem to be the driving, driving forces in this one, because I think the, the fact that William Burns is there seemed to be sort of take everyone slightly by surprise at the end of last week. 
Sure. I would note that he's actually been um, a part of some of these negotiations before. So this isn't unprecedented that he's part of this. Also involved has been other U.S. mediators, including Brett McGurk, who I think will be heading back to the region this week. Um, But this really is going to be a deal that relies on a lot of different layers of the government. It's a diplomatic um, deal on the one hand, but it's also going to involve the intelligence communities trying to figure out how exactly this is going to work, how to ensure the security of this deal on both sides, and to just make sure it actually is durable. If um, you know, if it goes down on paper, can it actually work in practice? So we do see. Oh, sorry. So we do see different actors involved in this. No, do carry on, Julia. Apologies, I interrupted you there. Uh, no, just to say, I, I think um, it also just shows the, the seriousness of the Biden administration's um, commitment in trying to see this through. Uh, Nimrod, how seriously is Israel taking this at the moment? I mean, clearly, Julie has said that the, the, the Americans are determined to bring about some sort of agreement. But is there that same spirit of willingness? I think there is. Uh, there is mounting pressure within the Israeli public on the fate of the hostages. We have more than 130 still held by Hamas, at least 30 of them. We know that they're not alive anymore. Uh, it touches upon a basic principle and value in the Israeli mindset of the responsibility of the state to take care of its citizens when they are in trouble. And there are many that are in trouble now. It's very personal uh, with so many people who lost and the campaign and demonstrations and public visibility of the hostage families. So everybody already knows the names, the faces, it's something that the Israeli society rallies around at a time when there is also a lot of political divisions that are re-emerging at this phase of the war. But there is definitely a, a yearning for such an agreement and a willingness uh, to pay the price, meaning putting a stop at least temporary for the fighting in Gaza. Uh, there are debates on whether Netanyahu is truly committed to that or whether he's looking for some way out of trying to prolong the war without necessarily paying prices that his constituency may not like. Nimrod, explain a little bit more about what you believe to be Netanyahu's stance. Uh, so currently it's political time again in Israel. At the beginning of the war, the first few months, it, it wasn't the time to go into the political divide. There was this sense of unity within society, not around the leader. You know, Netanyahu was not popular from day one around the war and is held accountable, but there was a consensus around the war objectives. Uh, one of the important ones of them was the release of the hostages. Uh, at this point of time, I think Netanyahu understands that when the war ends in Gaza, um, his political career may, may end as well. Uh, about 80% of the Israeli public wants him to resign. Uh, so there is kind of a game here between, on one hand, uh, the military objectives around which there is an agreement, but the sense that people on the right wing, and yesterday there was a big conference uh, of the far right, uh, participated by ministers and coalition members calling for a resumption of settlement activity in Gaza. This is so far away from where the Israeli mainstream in. Uh, so these political debates are coming back at, the, at exactly the time when such a deal is supposed to be signed, and therefore they are part of the consideration by both sides of the Israeli society. The, the structure of the talks and the, and the way they're being mediated, Julie, is also not without its problems. I mean, last week we had Benjamin Netanyahu saying that he just didn't trust the Qataris uh, because of their connections to Hamas. I mean, how much does that undermine anything that can be achieved here? 
Look, those kinds of comments certainly don't help the process at all. But I think the fact that the meeting still took place yesterday with everyone on board does show the larger commitments, Netanyahu sort of aside. Um, And I will say, as you noted, this is complicated. Again, Qatar is there sort of as the intermediary for Hamas, but they still then have to go back to first Hamas's political wing, then to the military wing, and then to the military wing inside Gaza. So there's a bit of a um, a bit of a process of echoes, and then it kind of needs to come back to the mediator. So nothing about this process is easy or fast. And I think that's important to keep in mind as it seems quite slow coming about. It doesn't mean that progress is not being made, but it, it's just very complicated. Judy, staying with you, how much did yesterday's attack on the US military base affect things? Look, I think this is going to complicate things a lot. Um, you know, really up until this point, there had not been um, direct uh, uh, casualties, deaths from these attacks on U.S. service personnel, which are over 150 in the region since October. The fact that there are now um, deaths, there are now high numbers of casualties, there's going to be a lot of pressure on Biden to respond to that. Um, I will say at the same time, the war has not been going the way that the U.S. I think thought it would for a while. It's still in their interest to get this hostage deal through, to have some kind of pause, and to really just try and de-escalate and cool things in the region that are just spiraling very quickly out of control. And Nimrod, staying with you, how much does any escalation outside the immediate location of conflict in Gaza? How much does that affect Israel's either ability to achieve its aims or indeed change the outcome of what's happening? The main concern in Israel is about what happens uh, with Hezbollah and Lebanon. Uh, that's the sticking point. That's something that, uh, again, impacts large parts of the society because there are tens of thousands of people who evacuated their homes in northern parts of Israel and uh, do not go back or, and will not go back until the sense of security is resumed. And then the question is, how can that be obtained? And therefore, I think the U.S. is also playing a major role here. Amos Hochstein doing his shuttle diplomacy, going back and forth, making some progress. So there is a lot of hope that uh, a further escalation between Israel and Hezbollah on the Lebanon border uh, will be uh, avoided. Uh, but of course, you know, the attacks on the U.S. and the U.S. engagement in the region is something that leads to greater instability that may play out in other arenas as well. Uh, it does anchor the U.S. into diplomatic efforts to try and make some progress. And we see that in other fronts, all kind of reports and convening the different countries uh, on the day after on possible contact groups that the U.S. is engaging with on defining what would be the new reality in the region. So diplomacy is now happening, and I think that's an encouraging thing because uh, when you only have war and no talks, that's a problem. Now we at least have a mix of those. Hopefully the balance will change for the diplomatic achievements later on. Nimrod Gorin and Julie Norman, thank you both so much for joining us on Monocle Radio. in Helsinki, which is where we head next. I don't miss domestic politics. I I like the international stuff and I do follow what's going on in Finland, of course, as well. But do I miss the day-to-day politics? No, I don't. Not at all. 
Well, what a difference a year makes. That was the former Finnish Prime Minister Alexander Stubb speaking to Monocle Radio in Davos last year. It's been seven years since he left office, but the result of yesterday's presidential elections or anything to go by, Stubb is on the verge of making a remarkable comeback as the nation's president. Last night, Finns cast their ballots in the presidential election, putting a trio neck and neck. Stubb, one-time Foreign Minister Pekka Havisto, and Jussi Halaho, the former leader of the far-right populist Finns party. Well, looking at the numbers and crunching them was to Petri Burtsoff, Monocle's Helsinki correspondent. Good morning, Petri. Good morning, Emma. So this was uh, largely as predicted, but uh, just lay out, how, where are we this morning? Yes, largely as predicted, although, I mean, we were sort of expecting this nail-biter where um, Mr. Halaho, the former leader of the of the far-right populist Finns party, would sort of catch up with um, uh, Stubb and Ninis, but that didn't happen. He He's lagging, I think, um, seven or eight percentage points behind them. But, I mean, yes, largely as ex- ex- expected, I mean, it's going to be now a second round on February 11th, we're pitting Stubb against uh, Harvisto, and the two of them are within two percentage points of each other, uh, and it's it looks like it's going to be quite tight, although it must be said that uh, there are 1.5 million votes that were cast for other candidates, and they will now be divided between Stubb and Harvisto, and most of those votes are sort of center-right votes, so very likely that they will go to Stubb rather than Harvester, who's seen more of a of a uh, left wing candidate in the second round, um, so Stoop, I think, is is the front runner now going into the second round. Just explain to us a little bit about the importance of the presidential role in in Finland and why Stoop would probably be a, a pretty safe bet, because the presidential role is not a a, a, a mini decorative one or ceremonial one, is it? No, not at all, actually. So so um, Finland's president is the leader of the country's foreign policy. So he, together with the government, but he usually represents, he, he or she, in this case, it's going to be he, uh, represents Finland on international arenas such as NATO summits and, and, and so on. Although the prime minister is usually the leader in EU affairs. Uh, but not, o- not only that, but it, uh, the president is also the supreme commander of the Finnish armed forces. And, uh, you know, especially in a time like this, Finland having just joined NATO um, and sort of um, drawing up defense plans for NATO's eastern flank. So it's quite an important role. So I can see, I mean, I like the clip that you played there in the beginning. I I, I can see why Stubb wants to return because he's still going to be sort of above the day-to-day politics. I mean, he has absolutely no power in domestic uh, politics and he, he, you know, no role in that. So he will basically be a figurehead for the country and an actual leader, leader as well. Well, and of course, for that role, he's he's very um, well prepared, having served as the foreign minister, the prime minister, and then also having served as a uh, um, professor of international politics uh, in 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 uh, at Florence. So so very prepared for that role. So, what kind of Finland are we looking at then under the the presidency of Stubb once again, if that were to happen? Well, I would say, I mean, either under Stubb uh, or Harvester, because Harvester is also very experienced in, in, in foreign policy and has a former UN career uh, behind him and also uh, having served as a foreign minister before. So either of those candidates, I mean, they're, they're very close to each other. They're both very 
liberal-minded. I mean, Stubb represents the Conservative Party, but he's a very, very much from the liberal wing of that party. So we're looking at Finland that is internationally oriented, that wants a very close relationship with uh, both uh, NATO and uh, the United States, um, and that wants Finland to play a a strong role uh, in in, in future of both uh, Europe and, and NATO. Petri Burtsov, thank you so much for joining us on Monocle Radio. Still to come, we head to Thailand and hear about the new immersive show, A Conversation with the Sun. So the show is that celebration of looking at the sun in a two-dimension projection and also in a seemingly three-dimensional space in the VR. Stay with us on The Globalist. UBS is a global financial services firm with over 150 years of heritage. Built on the unique dedication of our people, we bring fresh thinking and perspective to our work. We know that it takes a marriage of intelligence and heart to create lasting value for our clients. It's about having the right ideas, of course, but also about having one of the most accomplished systems and an unrivaled network of global experts. That's why at UBS, we pride ourselves on thinking smarter to make a real difference. Tune in to The Bulletin with UBS every week for the latest insights and opinions from UBS all around the world. Let's continue with today's newspapers. Joining me in the studio is Nina Dos Santos, international broadcast correspondent and former CNN Europe editor. Good morning, Nina. Good morning. How's the life in the Dos Santos world? Very good, thanks. Yes, yeah, still recovering from coming back from Paris yeah, <laughs> last week. Quite a few people had a little trip out there last you week. You were there as well. <laughs> I was, and it was and it was uh, super fun. But back to life, uh, back to the birth with with a big, big bump, um, with an amazing story that you wanted to talk to us on the paper review today about a Latvian MEP who's a Russian agent. Allegedly, yes. This well, is coming from the, uh, the as if protect us. <laughs> <laughs> this is coming from the publication The Insider, which is an opposition uh, news. Uh, news outlet um, online um, that works in tandem with members of Bellingcat, actually. So, you know, they have had many, many different scoops over the years about this type of stuff. And also, let's face it, it's not the first time that we've seen um, members of the European Parliament be accused of um, this type of activity. There have been people linked to the European Parliament who've faced espionage cases in Poland over recent years. But And Latvia itself, like other Baltic states, has, you know, um, a residual Russian ethnic Russian population who are very pro-Kremlin as a result who live within their borders. That's a legacy from the Soviet occupation of countries like Latvia since the 1940s. So this MEP, according to the insider, um, they claim has had, uh, they've managed to get their hands on leaked correspondence with two people who they say work for the FSB and have done for years and were this MEP's handler, uh, quote unquote, um, and that, you know, again, it's this idea that certain uh, fringe elements of the large body of members of the European Parliament are able to act as a Trojan horse, if you like, to try and push Russia's agenda and undermine the EU from within. This is important because we've got another set of European elections coming up in a few months' time. Well, Tatiana Zanoko is the, the person named uh, by the insider, isn't here to sort of turn around and say, 
it's not me, but she did say that I cannot consider the text that the insider sent to them uh, to be questions because it's based on information that you supposedly have, which by definition you should not have. You know, yeah, it's a sort of a, you mentioned that it's a it's a it's you know it's a big tr- attempt to sort of shut down the fact that this is highly confidential stuff. However, it does. As you mentioned, raise this idea of, of not necessarily a Trojan horse, but this this perpetual problem that Europe has, given the fact that it, its borders do have quite problematic and nigh on dangerous neighbours on it, doesn't it? That's right. And as I was saying before, some uh, some elements of you know those types of neighbours, like for instance Russia, also have you know political footprint among the electorate of these states. And this is really sensitive in areas like the Baltic because over recent uh, weeks we've heard you know people like the Prime Minister of Estonia, Kaya Kallas, warned that she thinks within three years' time Russia could start to challenge, if not breach, NATO's borders. And the first place she says they'll probably go for would be the Baltics by virtue of its proximity. But, you know, you can also engage in sort of hybrid disinformation warfare in these types of countries like the Baltics. I've been to cover these stories there. Um, And they've been going on for years, largely because you do have a population that is sympathetic to the views of the Kremlin. And so the idea here is that this member of parliament allegedly has, you know, gained Latvian citizenship back in the 1990s, uh, but used that to try and agitate on behalf of the Kremlin's agenda both inside Riga and inside Brussels as well, they claim. Let's move to a story in The Times. Uh, A German family must give up home taken from Jews in 1939. Uh, A lakeside house in Vandlitz that the original owners were forced to sell may be the last such restitution from the Nazi era. An astonishing story and a long story too. Yeah, that's right. This is a house that's worth about allegedly 1.5 million million euros according to the court and it's in this popular day trip destination location in the countryside near Berlin you know once it would have been part of eastern Germany which is why this case has taken so long to rumble on and finally come to the courts whereas in other parts of western Germany lots of this property that had been seized from Jewish families and forcibly sold by the Nazis as part of their quote unquote Aryanization policy of Germany back in the 1930s that's what this uh, happened here here in this case, lots of that was settled in the two decades after 1945 in Western Germany. But in Eastern Germany, the process has taken much longer because, of course, uh, unification only happened um, 30 years or so ago. So this could be the last case of this, an asset being forcibly seized and the money from it being handed over to the Claims Conference, which is a New York-based organisation that provides financial assistance for Holocaust survivors and also now increasingly for people affected by the war in Ukraine. But there is a challenge here uh, for the courts in Leipzig because the last person to live in this house is an 80-odd-year-old woman who is a descendant of um, her forefathers who bought this property from two Jewish women who later died in Auschwitz, sadly. Um, She says that it would be it would be, have a terrible effect on her life and she would be thrown into destitution if this property uh, was taken off of her hands. But, you know, the organisation, the claims conference in New York says the rules must be respected um, and this might be the last time that we see um, a case like this coming through the courts in Germany, obviously at an extremely sensitive time because uh, the... Um, remembrance of the Holocaust was this weekend. And, you know, Germany is yet again finding itself in a position where it's having to, you know, 
uh, revise its uh, painful history at a time when, of course, it's being drawn into commenting on the war uh, that Israel is engaged in in Gaza. And indeed, we saw hundreds of thousands of people take to the streets in Germany this weekend, mm-hmm. protesting against the rise of the far right. And indeed, the Chancellor Olaf Scholz has warned against the, the, the rise of neo-Nazi groups. I and mean, this is a very much an active problem for Germany. It is. It's a huge active problem for Germany. Uh, as I was saying before, when we were talking about um, destabilisation of the EU, potentially, with certain political factions, it's a bigger problem for the rest of the EU. I mean, you and I know, having uh, worked in continental Europe for years, Emma, you know, the Franco-German axis of the EU is absolutely crucial. And every now and then it sort of moves, doesn't it? Depending on whether or not you've got a sort of strong chancellor in Germany or, you know, a very ambitious president in France. And at the moment, uh, Germany very much feeling it. Yeah, the the pressure coming from the Alternative für Deutschland. Um, Remember that there was a story in the newspapers in Germany only just three or four weeks ago at the start of this new year, allegations that the AFD may have had a secret conference with even more right-wing fringe elements linked to them, which talked about forcibly deporting migrants from Germany, even if they were, you know, born in Germany. This is revising really sensitive periods of Germany's history um, that people said should never, ever happen again. Finally, we have about 30 seconds to a minute to talk about this. Do you play the piano, Nina? Sadly not. Neither do I. So my brain is going to age, you're going to tell Mine me, too. right? <laughs> Mine too. Are you in a choir? Sadly not. Neither am I. <laughs> Thankfully, my husband says. <laughs> because were we to be playing the piano and singing in a choir, possibly not right now, uh, we would be standing... We, the, the, there's an article that suggests that we would be uh, setting ourselves up to a healthy mental old age. Yes, that's right. Now, you know, when I when I saw this one, I think in The Guardian here in the UK, I suddenly had this vision of sort of bell peeling, you know, in some bucolic little town in England. And I suddenly realised why all the grannies do that. Um, but no, I, you know, I, I, and then and then I, I decided I better take up the flute or the piano pretty quickly. <laughs> yes, <laughs> better brains. Off aging brains. Basically, if you carry on uh, with music as you... I don't know when you have to keep going. Do you have to just keep going and going and going and never stop singing? I think the point is, as long as it's over 40, it has a a big benefit. But, you know, what's interesting about this story really here, Emma, is that we've heard for years and years and years how beneficial it is to play Mozart to babies when they're in their cribs. And, you know, I still have this memory of, you know, Bach, you know, coming from um, my children's nursery only a few years ago. Now, essentially, what they're saying here is that the benefits of sort of rhythmic music and actually the dexterity of playing the piano in particular that links you know the hemispheres of your brain is really important as you head towards 40 and past 40 because what it does is it keeps that executive function it allows you to start to think and act quickly on your thoughts and keeps your cognitive functions better so if you are listening and singing as you're going about your day and your family are asking you to be quiet tell them you're not going to because it will keep your brain active thank you so much nina dos santos the time here in london is 7:33. a quick look now at the latest headlines The debt-laden Chinese property giant Evergrande has been ordered to liquidate by a court in Hong Kong, with the judge saying enough is enough. The troubled developer has repeatedly failed to come up with a plan to restructure its debts, some 325 billion US dollars worth of liabilities, making it the poster child of China's real estate crisis. 
Hundreds of thousands of people across Germany have taken to the streets to demonstrate this weekend against the rise of the far right. The rallies were sparked by activists allegedly discussing the mass deportation of immigrants even if they hold citizenship. Chancellor Olaf Scholz has warned against the rise of neo-Nazi networks in Germany. And a man has been arrested after opening an aeroplane's emergency door and walking onto the wing. The man was on board a plane that had been stuck for hours on the tarmac at Mexico International Airport without air conditioning or water. The man was arrested, but his fellow passengers wrote a joint statement saying he had everybody's support. This is The Globalist. Stay tuned. You're listening to The Globalist with me, Emma Nelson. Now, 2024 is a crucial year for the United States. There's a presidential election on the way and the way it is covered carries crucial influence. However, instead of beefing up its reporting ranks, major titles seem to be reducing their headcount. So what's happening in the US mass media? Well, let's cross to Las Vegas now and join Christina Bellantoni, who's the director of the University of Southern California's Annenberg Media Centre. And uh, a very good uh, afternoon. Good evening to you, Christina. Thanks for having me. So who's losing what? We're hearing reports from the Washington Post, the LA Times, cable news, everything. It is across the board. Some of it is market pressures where one news outlet might cut and then another news outlet thinks they need to cut to stay, you know, apace. Uh, In California, where I am based and where the University of Southern California is, the Los Angeles Times, you know, used to be the fourth largest paper in America. It's the largest newsroom on the West Coast, extremely influential and has a really important role in the second largest city in America. And in the last week, they announced a huge, huge layoff uh, that if you couple that with layoffs from last summer, one in three journalists at the LA Times have lost their job um, in the last year. And it has had a tumultuous few years. I was, when I was most recently a journalist, that's where I was. I was a member of the senior leadership team known as the Masthead. And we faced a lot of challenges and then were purchased by a benevolent billionaire Patrick Soon-Shiong, who has uh, told people that he's losing $30 million a year in that newsroom, and that's why this layoff was necessary. You've also seen major cuts at places like Sports Illustrated, which is effectively ending its really important work, uh, again, with a storied history, and yes, those cable networks that you mentioned. So it's a tough time to teach the next generation of journalists as they think about heading into this profession. Just explain to us a little bit about the 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 effect on how the newsroom operates when you're finding that you're you've got fewer boots on the ground to try and cover what's going on there's a wide variety of ways that this can happen. You know, the Washington Post, for example, offered buyouts at the end of the year. And so they lost a lot of their senior staff and they effectively moved people around. They have enough people to do wide coverage as a really an international paper, but particularly, you know, kind of the national paper of the United States uh, with an incredible investigative arm. And, you know, they might have fewer photographers or fewer designers, but, but they have the resources to do what they need to do. The LA Times, it's a little different. You know, they're cutting so substantially throughout the newsroom. And uh, because of some complications with the way that the union was negotiating a contract, they only were able to cut people who were the most recent hires. So that did two things. It cut all of the innovation that the LA Times had been pursuing to attract younger audiences, which is important for financial growth. And it also 
completely decimated all of the really important work the paper had done in recent years to make the newsroom more reflective of the population of Los Angeles. Uh, Los Angeles is extremely diverse, multicultural, and over the last several years, all of the new hires have, uh, from a demographic perspective, from a uh, language perspective, from a uh, the way that you look at cultural communities perspective, they had really made huge strides that the paper was very proud of, and those are gone now. So you can't go and do the same thing. So it's very different for the LA Times than for the Washington Post, where they're not going to be able to do the same things they used to. And you mentioned 2024, an important year in America. They cut their entire politics team. Um, that's what I used to be in charge of when I uh, was there as a senior editor. And they also cut a huge number out of their Washington bureau, you know, covering the government on uh, the White House. There are still journalists doing that, the more senior ones. But again, all of the ones that are a little bit more um, tech savvy and reflective of the current generation are the ones that got cut. Well, speaking of tech savvy, in an election year, you are fighting nowadays battles on all fronts when it comes to reporting accurately and impartially. You have AI, you have disinformation, you have a huge amount of pressure, which is not going to help any newsroom's ability to cover what's happening in the election. How worried are you that what Americans are going to read and hear and watch is not going to be reflective of what is actually happening, given the fact that there is just simply not enough resource to go around? Yeah, this is actually an area where I have some hope. Uh, Stick with me for a second on it, because one, you have a lot of the, the ability to cover something is as easy as having a phone in your pocket, which everyone does. So in some ways, the barriers to access of getting true information and you know raw video or important in-the-moment breaking news out to the world is easier than it's ever been. And if you're a, you know, a journalist who might have gotten laid off from a legacy institution, you can absolutely go start a Medium account and charge um, – you know, however much for your monthly blog and actually make a living and still get information out there. So that part is good. Like the the ability to report is still there and there's so much interest in that. I, I don't worry that that will deplete. What I do worry about is the quality and the fact checking, right? It used to be that that newsrooms, whatever type of medium they were, they put a lot of effort into making sure the information was verified. And that is a core to mission. That's what I teach my young journalism students. You find information and you verify information. And given the less resources everywhere and a real lack of, um, in many cases, institutional knowledge, fake or misleading or um, just the wrong set of information that doesn't give a full picture on an issue, that's everywhere. And you see it where people don't have the history and so then they report something incorrectly and it didn't go through an experienced copy editor and then now it's out and you either have to have a correction or it's very embarrassing or at the the worst is that your audience is actually not properly informed. So I worry about that part, but I'm not worried that the campaigns and the, you know, what's happening in government will go uncovered. Talking of the audience, um, how much do Americans actually care about the news anymore. I mean, there is plenty out there, but I think there was an article in the New York Times last week that says Americans are suffering like probably an awful lot of the world with news fatigue. 
Yeah, it's such an important question. I personally have actually invested a lot of my own time and even my, you know, donation resources into local. Um, I support a, a local paper in my own community because that's the only way I know what's happening with the school board or new developments that are going to happen in the community, that sort of a thing. And I support nonprofit news, especially I'm on the board of a small nonprofit. I um, support Report for America, which is like a, a reporting core that goes into communities. I think America Americans are craving desperately good information that can teach them about what's happening in their communities. And yes, there is news fatigue and all the breaking news alerts. And I think especially when you look at the real possibility of a Donald Trump versus Joe Biden presidential election, I think that news fatigue is going to be even worse. But where you hear again and again is people want to know what's happening at home. The things that affect them the most are their potholes. Did the tree fall on the playground? Whatever those things are. And that's where you've seen that that community type of reporting suffer over the years. And actually there's a little bit of a resurgence now as news outlets start to figure out those business models and more and more of them move to nonprofit. There's again, a little kernel of hope there where people can get good information that they can invest in, whether that's small little investments and donations, or they're subscribing to their local community paper that lands in their driveway once a week, um, or even watching their local television news. So there's potential there. Christina Bellantoni, thank you so much for joining us on Monocle Radio. Now, the third iteration of the Thailand Biennale is taking place right now in the northern city of Chiang Rai. Our Asia editor, James Chambers, flew in for a conversation with the Thai film director, Apichatpong Wirasetakul. Now, the Palme d'Or winner is showing several works at the festival, which runs until April. And lasting close to an hour, the dazzling and dizzying event is having a limited run in Chiang Rai before travelling to Japan and Europe later this year. Well, James heard from Apichatpong about a conversation with the sun, a blend of art, film, theatre and virtual reality he began by explaining the concept like my films it's very hard to pinpoint what it is but I think it's as simple as my fascination with movement you know for the past few years I've just keep observing my environment at home or abroad when I travel the changes of brightness and my own movement internally the thoughts and also externally and then I so appreciate this awareness of being part of the whole scheme of movement. And the sun is a big part of it. It's an axis. It's like an origin of life, origin of change, origin of cinema that uh, took me back to my childhood, took me back to the ancestor in the cave where they start to discover fire and play with shadows and all this. So it's almost understanding this simple frame, simple relationship of time and our action. So the whole film is impressionistic of dealing with natural light translated into digital to the pixels. So the show is that celebration of looking at the sun in a two-dimension projection and also in a seemingly three-dimensional space in the VR. The show involves audience members watching moving images on a screen and then also donning VR headsets. It feels like a coming together of your two hats, one as an artist and one as a filmmaker. How do you see it? Is it you as an artist or is it you as a filmmaker? I don't know. I don't have any titles in terms of preference. 
But this show in particular is so interesting to me because each time is different, like a performance. The audience make it the show because when you go in, you see the people donning the headset and the way they move, they create another kind of imagined landscape. And when you yourself put on the headset, you understand that landscape, and then you have that memory a few minutes ago watching this screen. So it become layers or superimposition of images. So it's really fascinating. Just this kind of movement, internal movement, and it's so physical. This is the first time that I've been properly impressed, even blown away by the possibilities mm. of VR. What has been your own experience with the technology and how it relates to your creative process? I personally love playing games, video games, but then lately, I you know, for the past I think five, six, seven years, I become really motion sickness easily, so I stop that and then stop watching movies. So coming back to VR is really bring back the game time. And when I developed with Taniguchi-san, the VR creator. We stumble trying to find what is it? What is this thing about the bringing the idea of being together, but at the same time, really solitude feeling. So we try different game logic, but then it's not what I want. I just want people to aware of time, to just take time to observe, and so it come to this form, which is I cannot explain, right? What what it is? Yeah, this form. It's just one space, I believe. It's not about different scenes. Your feature films are famous for being unconventional and not linear, but in this show, you're dealing with in the VR world essentially multiple screens. At some stages, you're looking at maybe ten different screens. You also have these falling rocks, this rising sun, these huge statues. It doesn't sound like an action movie. <laughs> what does the create happen in a really slow? It's like a tsunami, but it's really slow, slow motion tsunami. Does the creative process differ for this as it would do to one of your films? Yes, I'm really struggling making it because there's limitless possibility, and also I cannot control. You know, there's no close up. There's no you know frame. So that's a reference to the frame in that VR, and then they disappear. So I have to rethink, you know, and think of it as a performance, as a stage, and just open platform and think of it almost like a dream that you go in and you explore yourself. And I think it's so bring back the layer of dream. Really, some people cried last night, no, with the premiere, and I just feel really moved because they told me they thought about. Dying or reborn or thinking about mother, and I thought that oh, it's so simple, but people have different association of looking at things, and it's quite like a dream. Even though you create a dream space, but then dream also have different realities to different people. I personally have got very good sea legs. I don't get car sick, but watching the show. Last night, I did feel slightly unsteady, and there were mm. times when I did need to actually sit down oh, on really? the floor, lie mm. down because the ground was moving under my feet. As the artist who created this, and someone who does get motion sickness, how <laughs> taxing, how difficult was it for you to create? Did it make you feel a bit unsteady? Mm, I got used to it. 
for me, I think of it as flying rather than racing somewhere. So I'm pretty okay with it. And with the music, it's also cushioning our journey very well. The show has debuted in Japan. It's mm. traveled to Germany. Audience members play an important part in the show. How do people in East and West react to it? Do they approach it in the same way or do you mm. notice any different approaches? Mm. I don't want to create stereotype, but what I witness is for the West is different curiosity. And for me, the staff who are there in black and kind of move around to arrange the headset, to deliver the headset in middle of the show is part of this movement. So in Germany, we have German staff. And they, for me, they're too physical because we started from Japan. So I'm so used to Japanese movement of people. And we have the head of operation who really treat it like a dance. So it's not only the audience, but also our team. And that was James Chambers speaking with Apichat Prongwirasatakul at the Thailand Biennale. This is The Globalist on Monocle Radio. UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries. Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today. To find out how we could help you, contact us at UBS.com. Time now for a look at the news headlines from the theatre world. Matt Wolf, theatre critic at the International New York Times, joins me with hot news from uh, the Plaza Suite review. Now, the Plaza Suite is Matthew Broderick and Sarah Jessica Parker yes. on stage. Yes. Hello. Live and in person. Gosh. Hello, by the way, Matt Wolf. Hello, Emma. Um, How are you? Very well, thank you. Good and goodness. excited, as as were many members of the audience, I gather, at Plaza Suite. Yes, uh, the woman next to me looked like she was going to have an orgasm at the sheer sight of Sarah Jessica Parker on stage. I think it's this thing about Carrie Bradshaw in the flesh. How does she look? How is she holding up? Exactly. It is the question that are we going for the play or are we just trying to see how she's aged? Well, that's the fascinating thing. I think people are there to kind of gop and see, you know, can she actually walk on stage without falling over? And then the real delight of the production is that actually it's her production. She dominates it in these three playlets, first written in 1968. Uh, She hasn't done much theatre over the years. Her husband has done a lot, but she's the occasion of the piece. And it's a very interesting play about the dissatisfaction of marriage, how kind of wedded life brings basically woe. And yet, it's acted by a couple who've been married for decades. So their togetherness sort of um, is ironic vis-a-vis the topic of the play. Much has been said about the fact that the top price is nearly pushing £400 a ticket. I mean, it's an argument for another day about what's happening with ticket prices. But is... The, the the you know if isn't are the names Broderick and Jessica you know Parker having a good enough effect on this? Is it worth it? Basically? It's so hard to say because of course critics go for free. But I would say that people who have spent that amount of money or who have that money to spend will probably think they got a lot of bang for their buck. And let me just say the sheer sight of the hotel suite where the play takes place is so gorgeous. I was ready to move in myself, and on, that would be a lot stage. more than four hundred pounds. So it's worth going to then. I loved it, and I thought she was fantastic. Brilliant! I'm glad to hear that because quite a lot of people have been quite hissy. I'm not hissy. I don't hiss this early in the morning. You're a nice critic. I'm a 
nice critic. What else is happening in the world? Well, I was so nice about this one. Uh, this is <laughs> this is a new play uh, called Exhibitionists by Sean McKenna and Andrew Van Sickle. And what's interesting about it is it opens uh, the King's Head Theatre in Islington in its new home, its new sort of modern funky home. It's going to be a home for LGBT theatre, uh, but they've got to do better than this. This is their opening attraction. It's a sort of um, flimsy uh, same-sex rewrite of Noel Coward's Private Lives. And while that might sound, I suppose, vaguely interesting in principle, it just doesn't deliver. And I just spent the whole time thinking, this is the best they can do to launch a new venue. And, you know, when you have a new venue, you want to put your best foot forward. And this this just didn't feel like anyone was really at the top of their game. What's wrong with it? Uh it's very amateurishly acted. The writing is very obvious. But the one thing that it does do very cleverly is it introduces a character of a Norwegian restauranteur hotelier, who, of course, isn't in Noel Coward's original. And that character, who's the one addition to the Private Lives kind of rewrite, is absolutely delightful. And that actor is uh, tremendous. And his name is Oysten Lude. You heard it here. Matt Wolf. thank you so much for joining us in the studio. You're listening to The Globalist Live on Monaco Radio. Finally, in August 2022, the Guggenheim Museum in Bilbao announced plans to expand into a Spanish nature reserve. The scheme, estimated at 100 million euros, was described as an adaptive reuse design split between two former industrial sites in Guernica and Mureta. Well, this plan has now been scrapped. Liam Aldous is Monocle's Madrid correspondent and joins me on the line. A very good morning to you, Liam. Good morning. Now, did this ever seem to be a particularly good idea? It doesn't seem like it on paper, but maybe there were some political heads thinking that in the lead up to the elections, which are slated for regional elections, which are slated for April, maybe it would get people excited. But it seems to have brought people out onto the streets in protests. And now suddenly the political heads have they haven't scrapped the project entirely. They've just announced a pause, which they're calling a time for reflection. And let's see whether just after the elections, depending on who wins, whether that time for reflection suddenly comes to a close and the project reemerges. Just, re- just remind us what it was supposed to look like and do. It was... Uh, basically an extension of the Guggenheim Museum, but in two separate locations in an estuary and wetlands, basically. There was going to be an artist residence in the town of Guernica, an old kitchenware and cutlery factory. And then about a path was going to connect uh, another site, some shipyards where there was going to be a a museum, an exhibition space and an observatory. But that's where the the cause for contention comes in because it was going to bring another 140,000 visitors to a very protected wetland and through a what they called a green path that was only going to allow pedestrians and electric vehicles. But a lot of people in a protected wetland is obviously a, a bit of a disruption. I mean, when, when you talk about it in that context, you do want to ask yourself, why would anybody want to build anything on a nature reserve? I mean, how did the idea come about in the first place? Well, it probably boils down to two things. Politicians love to build things. They also love to win elections. So when those two things come into <laughs> conflict with each other, sometimes the plans are withdrawn. But I think it was it's a project that's actually been talked about for nearly 20 years. And the, the Guggenheim in Bilbao basically put uh, the Basque country on the map and is a huge cause of, uh, of and focus of pride for, for Basque people. But uh, maybe uh, this is just one step too far. So what happens now? 
Well, uh, first, there's an election to be won. So uh, the, the, the parties that were basically leading the protest marches, there was a, a big protest in Guernica recently that brought thousands onto the streets, which is probably why the, the government in, in, the, in Bilbao took, uh, took notice. But basically, the elections will be will be fought. This is taking the steam out of this hot potato issue, and um, the the cause the the period of reflection, which is meant to be two years, uh, which uh, the the government says they're going to look at every aspect of the of the project, particularly who was actually running the the project from the, the Guggenheim headquarters. That's what they said they were most worried about. So. Uh, a lot of things need to reorganise themselves before the the constructors come back to the table. And finally, just tell us a little bit more about about the effect that Guggenheim has had on Bilbao. I mean, it, it opened a huge flourish, and you mentioned the idea that it had it had brought you know joy and life to certain areas of of, of the Basque Country. Just just tell us just how much of a of a difference it's made. It's made a huge a uh, huge difference on the on the landscape of Bilbao and also, I mean, you, you see for, for decades since it was it opened in 1997, you heard the, of the so-called Guggenheim effect where people all around the world, mayors, were were frothing at the mouth with big, big projects to uh, big Starkitect projects to, to put themselves on the map. But back in Bilbao, it really did just change the the narrative of the city. It was a post-industrial city. It was doom and gloom all around. And it really just changed the the idea of the city as, as a center of the arts. But also it revitalized industry, funnily enough. Liam Aldous, thank you so much for joining us on The Globalist. And that's all the time we have for today's programme. The warmest of thanks to all my guests and to the producers, Vincent McAvinney, Carlotta Rabella and Tom Webb. Our researcher was Naomi Ekwe and our studio manager was Tamsin Howard. After the headlines, there's more music on the way. The briefing is live at midday here in London and The Globalist is back at the same time tomorrow. I hope you can join me for that if you can. But for now, from me, Emma Nelson, goodbye. Thank you very much for listening and have a great week. Thank you.